When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Kathy with a C. And I'm Kathy with a K. And this is season two of Killer Destinations. Today's destination is Costa Mesa, California. Located on the coastal tableland above Newport Beach, Costa Mesa's first inhabitants were Native American Indians who settled on the Mesa near the banks of the Santa Ana River. In 1810, the same area was part of the Spanish land grant of Santiago del Santa Ana made to Jose Antonio Yorba. By 1880, settlers had begun buying portions of the rancho from Yorba's heirs. The city's first business was Osmet's General Store, and the city's first post office was established in 1909. In 1920, the city of Costa Mesa was officially named and agriculture dominated the landscape. Since its incorporation in 1953, Costa Mesa has transformed from a quiet suburban community with deep farming roots to a bustling city featuring some of the best restaurants, retail centers, and cultural arts in California. Today, Costa Mesa is a major commercial and industrial center of Orange County. In 1999, the city formally adopted the slogan, The City of the Arts, and it is home to the Pacific Symphony, the South Coast Repertory Theater, and the Seagerstrom Concert Hall. But in 2010, the residents of this city, with its strong thespian roots, were in shock as a story rivaling a Shakespearean tragedy played out before their eyes. On Saturday, May 22, 2010, retired special education teacher Steve Herr had not heard from his son, Sam. Sam was a 26-year-old Army combat veteran who served in Afghanistan and was now attending Orange Coast College on the GI Bill. He hoped to get an education and re-enlist in the Army as an officer. That weekend, Sam was supposed to go to his parents' house in Anaheim Hills, which was about 25 minutes away from where Sam lived in Costa Mesa. Now, Sam was normally very reliable, and Mr. Herr and his wife Raquel were concerned when Sam did not show up or call all day Saturday. Mr. Herr called his son several times, but Sam's phone was apparently off, which was also unusual. By Saturday evening, no longer able to remain patient, Mr. Herr went looking for his son. He had a key to Sam's apartment and let himself in. Now, according to an ABC documentary entitled The Final Act, when Mr. Herr entered the apartment, things seemed normal. The apartment was tidy, which was normal for Sam. But then Mr. Herr entered his son's bedroom and was horrified at what he saw. Mr. Herr immediately called 911 
and notified Costa Mesa Police Dispatch that there was a dead body in his son's apartment. He told the dispatcher that he could not identify the woman, but said he touched her cheek and she was cold. The dispatcher asked if Mr. Hurst's son knew the woman, and he said he did not know where his son was. Costa Mesa police rushed to the scene. Detective Jose Morales, an officer with 15 years on the force, was the lead investigator and saw that the deceased woman appeared to be kneeling on the floor next to her bed with her upper torso lying on the bed face down. So, Kath, it was kind of like she was kneeling next to her bed to pray. Detective Morales noticed what appeared to be a gunshot wound to the right side of her head. Her pants were torn and pulled down, and the back of her sweater was torn, and there were words written on her sweater in black marker. They said, all yours, F you. The detective found it interesting that the woman was wearing a tiara. Police found a woman's purse in the kitchen. The driver's license appeared to match the dead woman. Her name was Juri Kibuishi and she went by Julie. And Kath, on her license, it actually said Jury Julie Kibuishi. She was 23 years old. According to court records, Julie's cell phone was in her purse. And Kath, it actually, I believe, had been ringing when the detectives were investigating the scene. And your niece would have loved Julie because she had a Taylor Swift ringtone. She absolutely would have. Kathy's niece started a Taylor Swift fan club at her all-girls high school. <laughs> <laughs> it was very popular. But we also went to the Taylor Swift concert in we L.A. Did. Do you remember that? I sure do. It was fun. Yeah, that was fun. Not this year, by the way. We couldn't get tickets. Yeah, exactly. And if anybody has, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so Detective Morales looked at Julie's text messages and screenshotted them. The first text message that caught his eye was received late Friday afternoon. Now, this is the day before Sam's father found Julie's body. And a second group of text messages also interested the detective, and they were received by Julie after 11 p.m. on Friday night, the night prior. All of these texts were from Sam Her's phone. According to the previously referenced documentary, the messages did not paint a good picture of Sam and detectives believed that he had a romantic relationship with Julie that was going south. The text Julie received on Friday afternoon that caught the detective's initial interest said, helping Dan, then headed to folks for the weekend. The text Julie received from Sam after 11 p.m. on Friday night were much more urgent. They said things like, can you come over tonight at midnight alone? Going out for a bit, very upset, need to talk. And please, no sex. I need to talk to someone. I'm really not doing well. Please don't bring anyone. I really don't want anyone else knowing what's going on. At one point, Julie responded and said, yeah, that's fine, Sam. I'm here for you like family. She was making it very clear that she was a friend. That's the first thing I thought of when I saw that response. I totally agree with you. Kath, one of the last texts from Julie's phone was to her brother and it said, uh-oh, Sam is crying it's not good. Sam's father was questioned by Costa Mesa detectives about how he came to discover Julie's body and where Sam might be. Mr. Herr had no idea of his son's whereabouts and had not spoken with him all day. He was in total shock at the situation and believed with all of his heart that his son could not possibly have done something like this. Investigators soon came to understand, however, that Sam Herr was a trained combat veteran who had possibly been experiencing some nightmares that may have suggested post-traumatic stress from his combat days. 
Julie Kibuishi was a college student who lived in Irvine with her parents, both of whom were Japanese immigrants. She was the third child and the only daughter. And Kath, she was actually born on Valentine's Day. I saw an interview with her mother, and I, I wish I could remember. Her mom had this very endearing term for her, and it was something like my Valentine's Day gift or something. Aww. It was so cute. Yeah. Julie was very close to her family, particularly her mother, June. Julie had been dancing since the age of five and was really talented. She was also a budding designer who attended Orange Coast College. Her family was crushed by the news of her murder and told detectives that Julie had been tutoring Sam in anthropology and that their relationship was strictly platonic. On Julie's phone, there were also texts from her mother asking where she was. Kath, I also read that when her friends found out about her death, they created a memorial fund to pay the expense of taking part of Julie's ashes back to Japan. Apparently, it's a tradition for the remains of unmarried children to be reunited with their family. I read that and I love that. And I remember reading that her mother was working, but her father apparently had a medical condition that was very serious that prevented him from working. I don't know what it was. It wasn't revealed. But the expense of getting Julie's remains or at least part of her ashes back to Japan was a stress on the family. It was a concern. Oh, I could imagine that. Yeah. So kudos to her friends for stepping up. Absolutely. And Kathy, Julie's family was also able to clarify the tiara that Julie was wearing. So apparently she had been out that evening with her brother Taka and his fiance. And at dinner that night, Julie was asked to be a bridesmaid for them. And the tiara was given to her from her brother and his fiance as a fun little gift for her being a part of their wedding. And I could see if she's buddies with Sam going like, I'm wearing my tiara. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. An autopsy determined that Julie died in the early morning hours of Saturday, May 22nd, 2010, from two bullet wounds to her head. Investigators believed that Sam had murdered Julie in a crime of passion or perhaps as a result of some love triangle. When detectives ran Sam's name through their database, they were even more certain that he was responsible for Julie's death and was now in hiding. And Catherine, one of the things that they were concerned with was they believe that she died shortly after midnight. And so they're thinking he's had all day to figure out where to go. And he's a trained veteran, you know, he's a trained combat veteran. Exactly. So when investigators ran his name, they discovered that Sam was arrested eight years earlier and charged with murder one. He was accused of intentionally leading a friend into an area where he was ambushed by gang members and killed. Sam went to trial and with one of his co-defendants testifying against him, Sam was acquitted by a jury. He was completely exonerated in the murder plot, but this prior arrest gave Costa Mesa detectives confirmation that they were on the right track. So Costa Mesa police immediately put out an information bulletin for Sam Herr. They published his name, photo, and a vehicle description to TV news and print media, saying he was suspected of killing his 23-year-old girlfriend and was considered armed and dangerous. Police began interviewing Sam's neighbors and friends in an effort to find out where he was hiding. They also wanted to know who Dan was. Remember the first text that Sam sent to Julie that interested the investigators said helping Dan then headed to folks for the weekend. So, Kath, when investigators were at the murder scene, they saw an invitation for an upcoming wedding on Sam's counter. And it was a wedding for somebody named Daniel Wozniak and Rachel Buffett. 
And so when detectives began interviewing friends and neighbors, they realized that Daniel Wozniak lived downstairs from Sam and he lived with his fiance, Rachel. So they're figuring that this is the Dan guy that was referenced in a text. When detectives interviewed 26-year-old Dan Wozniak, he told detectives that he saw Sam Friday night before he left to go star in a local stage production. He said Sam had come downstairs to his apartment and was with a white man who was wearing a black hat, and Dan did not know who this guy was. He saw Sam and this man in the black hat leave together. Dan's fiance Rachel confirmed the same thing. She, too, did not know this person that Sam was with. When Sam's father found out that the woman he found dead in Sam's apartment was Julie, he was horrified. Julie was like a little sister to Sam. So Mr. Hur decided, something's going on, I need to go find him. There's no way his son could have done this. Mr. Hur had access to Sam's bank account and knew his son had saved nearly $62,000 of his combat pay. So in order to follow the money, he put an alert on Sam's account. But he also noticed that there had been activity on Sam's account after he went missing. It was from a bank in Long Beach. Mr. Hurd drove to the area and began looking for Sam's car in the bank's parking lot and the surrounding area, but he didn't have any luck. Sam's car wasn't anywhere to be found. Then Mr. Hurd got a bank alert that Sam's ATM card was being used at Echo's Pizza in Long Beach. Kath and I know Echo's Pizza well. We love Echo's Pizza. Love it. Well, we used to. Yeah, I know. It closed down. It was probably like part of the pandemic, but oh my God, it was there for years. They had the best Greek pizza. You order it with no pizza sauce, but like gobs of olive oil. Ugh, it was like crack. It was a total favorite hotspot for my entire in-law family. Yes, it was. Oh my God. It reminds me so much of my mother-in-law. God rest her soul. She was an angel. And so it's like, even when I still drive by that area, I think of my mother-in-law. We were just there so often. Right. I feel like I talk too much about food on this podcast. (laughs) Never. (laughs) My marshmallow cream, my Greek pizza. (laughs) Your moon pies. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) In the microwave. (laughs) Hey, that got us to Chattanooga and that was fun. So totally. Keep talking. Yes. Thank you, Jennifer. (laughs) Yes. You're the best. Anyway, so Mr. Hur has gotten this notice that the ATM was being used at Echoes, so he went to the pizza place and he checked around for Sam's car. He didn't see it, so he sat in the parking lot for about an hour hoping that Sam would come back, but he never did. Now, at the same time that Mr. Hur was doing his searching, the Costa Mesa police were also monitoring Sam's bank account as well as Sam's cell phone usage. Detectives saw that there were four cash withdrawals from two different ATMs in Long Beach. It took detectives a couple of days to receive the videos, and thankfully, both ATMs had cameras, and what they saw surprised them. Both videos showed the person withdrawing the cash, but it was not Sam. It was a teenage boy. In one video, he was holding a skateboard and wearing a hoodie, and in the other, he was wearing a dark baseball cap. Detectives had no idea who he was, but they believed that he may be the man Dan and Rachel saw Sam leave his apartment with before he went missing. Detectives showed Mr. and Mrs. Hur the videos, but they also had no idea who this boy was. So Costa Mesa detectives went to Echo's Pizza and asked if the pizza charged to Sam Hur's debit card had been ordered for delivery. And it had. Echo's Pizza gave Costa Mesa detectives the delivery address. It was for a nearby home in Long Beach. They then prepared for a raid on the location. With a helicopter and multiple officers in tactical gear, they banged on the door and identified themselves. 
17-year-old Wesley Fralick answered the door to guns drawn and was ordered out of the house, handcuffed and placed face down on the ground. I saw an interview with him and he was like, he basically said he pooped his pants. Like, oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, I didn't I, see that. I'm sure he was speaking. Probably well, actually, not. I'm not sure about 17 that. 17-year-old boy? But he said it was terrifying. Anyway, so inside the home, the master bedroom was locked. So the tactical team believed that Sam Hur was hiding in there and they basically broke down the door, but nobody was in the master bedroom. Police, however, did find an ATM card with Sam Hur's name on it. The terrified Wesley told police that he was given the ATM card. When investigators asked how he knew Sam, he said he didn't. He'd never met him. He was given the ATM card by his acting mentor, Dan Wozniak. Wesley said Dan told him that Sam owed a bunch of money to a bail bondsman. So Dan asked Wesley to help withdraw money and gave Wesley Sam's debit pin code. Wesley was concerned and asked Dan if this was legal, and Dan actually showed him legal documents giving permission to make the withdrawals. But Wesley then tells detectives that Dan said, be sure to wear a hat and glasses. Wesley said Dan took him to a bank to take out money from an ATM. Kathy, this was kind of funny. The detectives go, well, when you brought down the money, what did he say to you? And they're looking for something like, thanks for the money. Here's your cut. Or now I got to go give the money to Sam. And Wesley says, Dan asked me what took so long. <laughs> <laughs> I got places to be, man. Yeah. And Wesley explains to the officers that he had never used an ATM machine before. And it took a while to figure it out. <laughs> this is like our episode from last week where they remembered the guy at the ATM machine. Who seemed like he didn't know what he was doing. Exactly. Yeah. I literally remember the very first time I used an ATM machine. Oh, I totally like peeked over the person's shoulder in front of me because I was like, how much did you get from there? What is this exactly? <laughs> then I stole their money. But um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I was like, what is this new and magical device? But anyway, so Wesley apparently was the same way. <laughs> <laughs> Kath, why are so many dogs now suffering from health issues? Actress Katherine Heigl, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, said she's seeing more issues with joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health, their food. What she discovered is actually the way many dog foods are made can create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many of the premium brands. Fortunately, she found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw a huge transformation in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. And Kath, as you know, we have a schnauzer named Ollie, and even though my husband insists he is not, he is overly flatulent. <laughs> <laughs> After I started giving him this food, I swear there was a reduction in his smell. I love that. And I'll come over to your house now. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Well, and you know, we have a Vishla we call Orange, and she's a senior dog. And over the last couple of weeks, she has actually had more energy to be running around the backyard with the younger dog, the Doberman we call Brown. Or crazy. A little bit. <laughs> so if you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to BadlandsFood.com slash Killer D and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S. F-O-O-D dot com slash killer D. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? 
What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. According to court records, Costa Mesa Police Detective Michael Delgadillo, a 33-year officer, called Dan and said, hey, can you come to the station? Dan said he wasn't available because he was having his bachelor party. Is that what you say when the police ask you to come down? Exactly. You know what? I'm busy, yeah. but let me, yeah. I'll hit you if I've got it. Yeah. And Costa Mesa is like, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> We're going to make a big impact on you. So what they do, I don't know what Dan told him on the phone. But again, they knew he was having a bachelor party and they knew it was at a local restaurant. So they freaking start scouring restaurants. I want to say it was like Detective Cohen who basically said we were just randomly choosing restaurants, but we were going to find this guy. Which is crazy because Dan must have said something that indicated it was Costa Mesa. Something. So maybe they said it was a sushi restaurant or something because they see Tsunami Sushi and they're like, let's go in here. And they had gone into other establishments anyway. Dan is there and he's there with his buddies. So, you know, Costa Mesa PD, they don't play. So they... So they arrest him in front of his friends. Oh, nice. Yeah, exactly. I hope someone got that on video. They. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what cracks me up in this, Kathy? Like when they go out, they find him at the sushi place and they pull him in only because a 17 year old ordered pizza on the debit card to be delivered. Yes. It's like, by the grace of God, that 17 year old was, you know what? I'm going to take this and I'm getting myself a big old cheese pizza. (laughs) I hope it wasn't cheese. I know. I hope he got something better. Anyway, so they take Dan to the station. And as they're beginning this process of come on in, we're going to talk to you. He says, I'm sick of covering for Sam. I'm going to tell you everything. I've got a wedding to get to in two days. Now, court records stated that Detective Delgadillo interviewed Dan on May 26, 2010, just four days after Julie's death. Dan was first read his Miranda rights, said he understood them, and wanted to speak with detectives. Dan told the detectives that he agreed to a scheme with Sam Herr to take funds out of Sam's bank account and then report the funds as being stolen to get them refunded to Sam. Sam would then give Dan a cut of this money. Now, Kath, in the documentary referenced earlier, footage actually showed Dan telling the detectives that on Friday morning, May 21st, 2010, so this is the day before Julie's body was found, Sam asked Dan, hey, how serious are you about helping me? And Dan said, I am looking for money. I'm willing to do whatever you need. So that same day, Dan agreed to take Sam to Long Beach, take money out of his account and funnel it to him. 
Now, when Dan first got the money out of the ATM as part of this scam on Friday, Dan took Sam to a bar on the Joint Forces training base in Los Alamitos. It was called Fiddler's Green and left Sam there while he went to Long Beach to take money out of Sam's account so he could then funnel it to him. This is when he showed Wesley the fake legal papers to get Wesley to help him as part of this. Now, after getting the money out of the ATM, Dan went back to Fiddler's Green to pick up Sam. However, Dan vehemently denied having anything to do with Julie's murder and denied having entered Sam's apartment. Now, at different points, there were different detectives in there talking to Dan. In addition to Detective Delgadillo, Detectives Everett and Cohen also interviewed him. Detectives told Dan that his story about Sam creating a plan to steal his own money did not make any sense at all. And they repeatedly asked Dan where Sam was. Dan kept saying he did not know. Kath, I think in the interview, Dan told detectives that Sam owed money to a loan shark, a lot of money, and he didn't want to completely drain his bank account. So he needed to take that money out, commit fraud and have the bank reimburse him. So that was the story he told the detectives. Dan actually told detectives, though, that he had an alibi to prove that he was not involved in the murder. In fact, as we said, on Friday night, he was at a theater in Fullerton. This is about 20 miles north of Costa Mesa, starring in a musical with his fiancée, Rachel Buffett. As the interrogation got more aggressive, Dan eventually told the detectives that Sam made a confession to him. Dan said that on Saturday morning, one day after Wesley took money from the ATM, Sam knocked on Dan's door at about 8.30 a.m. Dan said, hey, man, how you doing? And Sam replied, not good. We're in trouble. We need to get the F out of here. I did something bad. There is a body in my apartment. I shot somebody. I was doing ecstasy. I didn't mean to. I'm not happy about it, but honestly, she had it coming. Dan told detectives that he started freaking out and said to Sam, dude, I'm not one to judge, but you effing got me into this. If you ever told me that you had killed somebody, I would absolutely judge you. (laughs) (laughs) But would you still help me? (laughs) I might still help you hide the body. Yes. There are times when judgment is okay. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) In fact, warranted. Yes, exactly. So Dan told detectives that Sam responded to him. I know where you live. You wrap me out. I'll effing kill you and your wife. Get in the car. You need to drop me off somewhere. Dan told detectives that they decided the safest place for Sam to be dropped off was where there are so many people that nobody is paying attention. So he dropped Sam off at the mall. Now, I didn't see this, Kathy, you did. There are two very high scale malls in Southern California in Orange County. The photos they showed of the mall or the images, I should say, were of palm trees. So I was like, oh, that's Fashion Island. Exactly. But it was funny during the interview, the detective was like, a mall? You could probably go to any other mall in Southern California and you're fine. You go to Fashion Island, you are being tracked from the minute your car gets within like a mile of the place. After Dan tells detectives that he left Sam at a mall, he says, I admit I lied and I'm sorry. On the day that Julie's body was found, you questioned me. I told you that there was a white guy wearing a black hat that Sam was with. That was a lie and I'm sorry. So now detectives are sitting there and they're like, okay, this guy just admitted lying to us. So they go, hey, do you mind providing us with a DNA sample? And Dan complied. He's like, sure. So they swab his cheek and then they say, we have to eliminate you as a suspect. And he was like, what? He was shocked. Like, I'm a suspect. You're not believing me, even though I just told you I lied to you. Exactly. So detectives then try to confirm that Dan's DNA will not be found in Sam's apartment. And so Dan says, well, wait a second. I was in Sam's apartment on Friday afternoon. You know, that was the day they went and got the money. So they go, "Okay, well, where's your DNA going to be found? 
And he said, well, I used the bathroom, you know, and I think I was on the patio. So as he's ruminating about where his DNA could be found, one of the detectives says, is your DNA going to be found on Julie? And he was like, no, absolutely not. Then they start asking him, like, where's the murder weapon? And he's like, I don't know. And they're like, wait a second. Sam told you that he shot Julie and you didn't ask him where he put the gun. Now Dan's getting pissed because he's not understanding why they don't see him as the victim. He's like, look, he was threatening my life. He threatened my fiance's life. Like he was not understanding why they were crawling down his throat about this stuff. Why they didn't believe him. Right. At this point, they're sort of at an impasse. He's pissed. He doesn't want to say anything else. The detectives are pushing, pushing, pushing. He's done. And he's like, I'm out of here. And they're like, oh, you're being arrested for accessory after the fact. He is shocked. He cannot believe he's being arrested because in his mind, I've told you everything I know and you're still arresting me. He's being a good Samaritan. That's like how he sees it, right? right? So now he's frustrated because they want to take him to the pokey. And he's like, what? What do you want me to say? You want me to say I saw the body? Fine. I saw the GD body. Is that what you want to hear? Now, detectives have a third version of events and they see that he's escalating and they start yelling at him and pressuring him. Tell us the truth. You keep changing your story. You're not even that good an actor. He's like, fine, I'll tell you the truth. He says, Sam came to my door on Saturday morning and asked me to help him. He said I needed to come upstairs. Dan tells detectives that he went upstairs and he saw Julie's body. But he said, I did not touch it. Now, this interview is over the course of hours. At the point where Dan is admitting he saw Julie's body, one of the detectives says, then how can you explain why your DNA is on Julie's body? DNA just doesn't fall off a person. He was insistent. I didn't touch her. I didn't have anything to do with her. No way. The cops, of course, were BSing him, but he's freaking out. But what was kind of amusing in the interview, they just kept telling him, you're not a good actor. You're not a good actor. (laughs) That was probably the ultimate insult. He wasn't mad about the wedding or the prison term. He just wanted to be a good actor. I swear. So anyway, so Dan vehemently denies that he touched Julie's body. But of course, he told the detectives that he saw Julie up there. So the detective said, tell us exactly what you saw. Dan told them that he saw two gunshot wounds to Julie's head, her ripped pants, and writing on her back. Detectives started pressing him on the gunshot wounds, Kath, because they did not believe there was any way that Dan could discern two bullet wounds. Julie had very thick black hair, and he was saying that he saw bullet wounds in her skull. He also did say that Sam told him he shot her twice. But the fact that he said, yeah, I saw saw the bullet wounds, the detectives were like, "Mm mm-hmm. So, of course, they're pushing him again. And so Dan finally gets so frustrated that he's like, I'm done talking. I want to go back to my cell. So they took him out of the interrogation room, took him back to his cell. When he was in the holding cell, he asked to speak to his fiance, Rachel. So they let him use the phone. Once Rachel's on the phone, she's like, Dan, what did you do? And Dan said, well, I had to help Sam cover some stuff up. And we got some drugs, but I did not murder anyone. And Rachel said, "Okay, I need to talk to detectives immediately because I know that your brother, Tim, has evidence about the murder. When Dan heard Rachel say that Tim had evidence, his response was, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no. You cannot call detectives. If you do, I am doomed. What's interesting, Kathy, is that on this call, when Rachel said that she had to call the detectives, it was because, as she reminded Dan, the phone call was being recorded 
And she said, I don't want them to think that I was holding off on telling them things because they're recording me right now. Right. Even though Dan was like, don't call him. Yeah. Yeah. Ultimately, Dan broke down and told Rachel that he had to tell the truth about what he did. And he said to her, I think you know what I did. And it was bad. Imagine the very worst thing. And that is what I did. And of course, Rachel was correct. The Costa Mesa police recorded the entire phone call. Court records showed that the next day, a jailer called Detective Delgadillo and said, Dan Wozniak wants to talk to you. When they brought him into the interrogation room, Dan was given his Miranda rights again. But then Dan said, where's my attorney? The detective responded, if you want an attorney, that's fine. I can't talk to you then. So Detective Delgadillo re-advised Dan of his Miranda rights. And when he did so, Dan then waived his right to an attorney. When Detective Delgadillo asked what Dan wanted to tell him, Dan said, I'm crazy and I did it. And the detective said, you did what, Dan? And he said, I killed Julie and I killed Sam. Dan then told detectives an unbelievably gruesome story. Dan said that on Friday, he lured Sam to the Liberty Theater on the Joint Forces training base in Los Alamitos by asking Sam to help him move furniture and theater props in the attic. The two of them climbed the ladder to the attic, and when Sam bent down to pick up a piece of furniture, Dan pulled out a 38 caliber pistol and shot Sam in the back of the head. According to Orange County District Attorney Matt Murphy, Sam did not die. Sam thought he had been electrocuted and said, I've been shocked. I need help. Dan tried to shoot Sam again, but his gun jammed. So he reloaded the gun and shot Sam again in the back of the head a second time, killing him. Dan then left Sam's body in the attic, drove to Long Beach, withdrew money from the ATM with Wesley, and returned home. That night, he performed the lead role in his musical in Fullerton. After the performance, Dan used Sam's phone to text Julie Kibuishi to lure her to Sam's apartment. He knew that he had to create a situation where police ultimately believed he was on the lam. Dan concocted the scenario, I am going to kill Julie, make it look as though Sam did it, so police are going to think he's on the run. And frankly, that's exactly what he did. So he starts texting Julie from Sam's phone. You know, come, be by yourself. I need to talk to you. No sex, I promise. All this stuff. Julie arrives right around midnight, probably shortly after. Dan lets her in to Sam's apartment, pretending to be concerned about Sam. So Julie comes in and Julie and Dan aren't buddies, but they know each other because everyone is very social at this apartment complex. They're also Facebook friends. So they really just know each other through Sam. But there was no alarm bells going off in her head. So Dan says, I'm concerned about Sam, but I want you to come into the bedroom and there's a stain on the bed. I want your opinion on it. Well, there's no stain on the bed. As she bends over, he shoots her twice in the back of the head. She just falls slumping to that kneeled position that we described in the beginning of the episode. He then stages her murder to make it look like it was sexual rage, you know, like tears her shirt, writes on her sweater, all, all that stuff. And by the way, Kath, this gun that he used to kill Julie and Sam was his father's gun, and he stole it from his dad's house in Long Beach. He did not have permission to have it. Anyway, after staging the murder, he leaves. Now, this is the early morning hours, shortly after midnight Saturday. 
Dan returns to the military base in Los Alamitos, where Sam's body is located, and he comes with an axe and a saw that he got from his fiancé's parents' house. He also went to a barber shop on the base and stole a pair of scissors. So Dan goes up to the attic. He saws off Sam's head and his left arm. He sawed off his left arm because he had a noticeable tattoo, which would have easily identified him. And he also sawed off his right hand. His exclusive goal was to make it difficult for authorities to identify the body. Dan then tells detectives that he left Sam's body in an attic, but took the parts to the El Dorado Park Nature Center, where he randomly hid them. And so let me describe this. Imagine a very large park that abuts a flood control. The Nature Center is part of the park, but it's much more secluded. Lots of large trees and foliage, and it has a path that you can kind of walk through. It's like maybe two miles. It's a loop that will take you through it and around it. Exactly. You have to pay to go in during the day and walk around in there. It's the kind of place they take kids. Like my kids have been to field trips there. So lots of animals, lots of nature. Anyway, he hides these body parts in the nature center, returns home, and that night, Saturday night, performs in the play in Fullerton again and goes to a cast party afterwards. So there's photos of him smiling and he's with his friends and his castmates and he's looking like he doesn't have a care in the world in these pictures. Of course, he's vomited all this information out. So Detective Michael Manson of the Costa Mesa Police Department went to the Liberty Theater at the Joint Forces Training Base and discovered Sam Herr's decapitated body that was left in the attic. According to an Associated Press article in the Los Angeles Times, the FBI, the Long Beach PD, and the Costa Mesa PD all searched the Nature Center and El Dorado Park. They found Sam's left arm and right hand, but they had to search for two days with cadaver dogs before finding his head. And Kath, I saw an interview with Sam's dad, Mr. Herr. Authorities found Sam's head on what would have been Sam's 27th birthday. Oh my God, I didn't even realize that. That's so horrible. An autopsy confirmed that Sam had been killed by two gunshot wounds to the head. Now, if you'll remember the phone call that Costa Mesa detectives recorded of Dan's phone call with his fiance Rachel, based on what they heard, detectives then paid a visit to Dan's brother, Tim. Remember, Rachel made a comment that Tim had evidence of a murder. What had happened is that Dan had given Tim a bag and told him to get rid of it. However, apparently Tim was not the sharpest knife in the drawer. So he got rid of it by throwing the bag over a fence into the side yard of his parents' house. Maybe he was really bad at hide and go seek as a kid. (laughs) I'm guessing. Honestly, (laughs) thank God he was bad at it. Absolutely. When the police went there and Tim told them where the bag was, sure enough, it was still there. In it was a prosecutor's treasure trove. Kath, it had Sam's phone, his credit cards, passport, checkbook, wallet, and they also found the murder weapon, which contained DNA, as well as spent shell casings. According to prosecutors, Dan was behind in rent, had just borrowed money from a theater friend to avoid an eviction, and had a history of unsteady employment. Basically, Kath, he just wanted to make stage acting the only thing he did, whether he got paid for it or not. Which nobody can do. Right. Prosecutors pointed at Dan's inability to earn money, his lack of discipline at keeping jobs, and his generally grifting attitude to prove Dan's motive for murder. 
Basically, Dan wanted to use Sam's savings from his combat pay for Dan's wedding and then to go on a Royal Caribbean cruise for his honeymoon. You know, Kath, it was interesting. We've only touched on, obviously, a very small part of the interviews that the detectives did because they were hours long. But at one point, I thought it was interesting because he confesses to the murders and the detectives were inquiring about his motivation. And he goes, I'm crazy. And the detectives both go, no, seriously, what was the reason? And he was like, it was the money. Like, <laughs> like they were having none of his drama. Exactly. They were done. Yeah. They're like, dude, it's Friday. I want to go home. Exactly. So rather than getting married on Friday, May 28th, 2010, as he had planned, Daniel Wozniak was charged with the premeditated murder of Julie Kibuishi and Sam Herr. Which, by the way, was fast detective work. Oh, it absolutely yeah. was. Remember, all of this happened on the 22nd of May. This is incredible. Good for them. Now, according to an Associated Press article that ran in the Sacramento Bee, that weekend, Dan attempted suicide. He fell into a coma and was taken to Western Medical Center. I could not find how badly he was hurt or anything like that, but he eventually recovered. This case wended its way through the court system very slowly, with the victims' families making dozens of appearances leading up to the trial. It was nearly two years after Dan's arrest that the grand jury indicted him for murder and special allegation enhancements of murder for financial gain, multiple victims, and personal use of a firearm. Now, Kath, public defender Scott Sanders represented Dan Wozniak, and he aggressively defended Dan to the point of accusing the judge of bias, accusing the prosecutor Matt Murphy of misconduct, and making very lengthy but ultimately unsuccessful motions to exclude the most damning evidence. You know, Kath, this was interesting because in some of the articles that I read, they were talking about the length of the motions. This is a 128-page motion. This is a 500-page motion. They were talking about what the defense attorney was doing. But one of the motions that he made, and again, like when you're constantly making motions and you're challenging judges' bias and all this kind of stuff, all it does is kick the can down the road. So it just elongates the process. So ultimately, the case went to a jury trial in September of 2016. We're not going to go into details about the trial, but there was one very notable thing that Kathy and I were talking about, which is we've mentioned a couple times that he was an actor, a very good actor, I'm sure, in his own mind. When he walked in to the courtroom every day of the trial, it was like he was greeting an audience. Totally. He could have been the king. I mean, like literally the whole holding court phrase. That was him. Exactly. He walked in with a great smile for everyone. It was almost like he was walking in going, my subjects, I'm here. It was very odd. According to Prosecutor Matt Murphy, on September 12th, 2016, the jury delivered one of the quickest murder verdicts for a death penalty case in Orange County, having found Dan guilty after only one hour of deliberation. They did recommend the death sentence, which the judge later imposed. After he decided to accept the jury's recommendation for the death penalty, Orange County Superior Court Judge John Conley said, at the cost of two human lives, the defendant chose not to get married inexpensively or defer his honeymoon. He wanted to do it in style, and he was willing to kill two people he knew to accomplish this. And here's the saddest thing to me. Sam had all this money that he had socked away in this account. Dan and Wesley went to the ATM on four occasions, pulling out $400 each time. So these two people were killed for less than $2,000. It's so mind-blowing. 
for me, I look at the way that Sam Hur made the money he saved. He right. more than earned every dime of it. Every dime of it. And one of the things I read about him, and I cannot remember the area of Afghanistan that he served in, but they said this was an intense battleground. You offer all you can for your country, and then you save that money for combat pay, and this? Right. It's tragic. Although Dan was sentenced to death, there was a moratorium on executions in California. In July of 2021, with no notice to the her or Kibuishi families, Dan was moved from the maximum security San Quentin State Prison to the lower security Salinas Valley State Prison as part of a pilot program called the Condemned Inmate Transfer Pilot Program. And the program allows condemned prisoners to move locations for employment opportunities. Now, they supposedly vet them for their behavior in prison. But in my head, I'm like, employment opportunities? What? What these condemned prisoners do is they participate in rehabilitation. And then, of course, they work supposedly to pay for restitution. 23 cents an hour is going to help them get there. Say, so the $12.47 that he made that month. <laughs> right. I don't think it's going to help either of the families. In an article in the Mercury News by Sean Emery, Sam Hur's father, Steve, was quoted after Dan Wozniak was transferred from San Quentin. Mr. Hur said, it's like night and day. It's like going from Motel 6 to a regent. He said, it would have been nice for them to at least notify me. It's a kick in the gut. I want the harshest possible penalty. As late as April of 2023, documents were filed in the case of People versus Wozniak, which show that Daniel Wozniak had ordered the transcript from the Superior Court, meaning he was in the process of filing an appeal on his death penalty case. Now, as a side note, According to a June 3rd, 2013 OC Weekly article by Matt Coker, Rachel Buffett was charged with three counts of accessory after the fact for misleading the police on her boyfriend's behalf in order to deflect suspicion from him. Kath, believe it or not, she went on a freaking publicity campaign. I saw that. Proclaiming her innocence to anybody who would listen. She also was brought on the Dr. Phil show. Now, he's not popular at all now, but you put us back 13 years. He was at the height of his popularity. Totally. So she went on there to proclaim her innocence and have her big, oh, look at my sad tears. But on the same episode, Dr. Phil brought Sam Hur's dad, Steve, on the show and allowed him to cross-examine Rachel. I think, honestly, you characterized it perfectly. It was like a cross-examination. Mr. Her was not delicate with what he said to her at all, nor should he have been. That's just my own little aside. No, I agree 100%. But Mr. Her's big problem is that he had to see Rachel over and over again on all these TV shows and in newspapers saying, I didn't do anything. I'm innocent. I'm innocent. And in the meantime, two people were killed. Mm -hmm. One of the things Dr. Phil pointed out is that when Mr. Her was talking about his son, all he had done, the fact that he died, how he was killed, Rachel didn't bat an eye. She didn't cry. She didn't respond. She just sat there. You know, one thing I read, Kath, at some point, June Kibui, she, Julie's mom, was speaking in reference to Rachel. And basically, she said the way she viewed Rachel was that Rachel extended the process by like six and a half years. 
Now, it was alleged at Rachel's trial that she lied to officers 19 times in a single conversation. Her defense was that she was just repeating the bad information that Dan had given to her because she trusted him when he said it was the truth. In November of 2018, Rachel Buffett was sentenced to 32 months in prison, and she is now currently out of jail. At the penalty phase in Dan Wozniak's trial, Sam's father and mother stood together alongside a handful of Sam's military friends. Mr. Hurst said at the podium that he could speak for hours about his son, whom he and his wife loved with all of their hearts. He thanked the judge and prosecutor and expressed sympathy for the Kibuishi family. Then Mr. Hur looked at Daniel and stated, Daniel Wozniak is the poster boy for the need of a death penalty in California. At the end of his victim impact statement, Mr. Hur voiced that his only regret was that the state of California wouldn't let him kill this coward himself. A letter was also read in court from Army Captain Benjamin Kilgore, Sam's troop leader in Afghanistan, and he praised Sam's character and bravery as a U.S. soldier. Sam served as a private first class in the United States Army, enlisting on July 6, 2006. He bravely served a tour of duty in Afghanistan with the 173rd Airborne. Sam Hur was buried with honors at the Riverside National Cemetery in California. At the penalty phase of Wozniak's trial, Julie's mother, June, said to him, You took my beautiful, caring, loving daughter's precious life to cover up your heinous and planned crime for the pathetic reason of wanting money for your wedding and honeymoon. You took advantage of my daughter's kindness and care for her friend. You knew she would help her friend Sam, and you took her precious life just to be used as a decoy. For six years and four months, I sat behind you every time I came to court, seeing you coming out, smiling for the cameras and audience, enjoying being the center of attention. Did I ever see any remorse? No, not even once. Your behavior convinced me that you're not worthy of being called a human being. Daniel Wozniak, now age 39, is currently serving his sentence at the California Medical Facility in Vacaville, California. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.